Let's read verse 5. It's the same. I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Read that again. Read it with me, would you? I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. God bless you. you may be seated. <clears throat> now, Jesus has the word accept in there. Now, if you turn with me back to Genesis, the second chapter, you will find that there was a commandment given to Adam and Eve in the garden. And the Lord told them, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now this is a commandment of God. Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, verse 4, says, The soul that sinneth shall surely die. Now, there is one characteristic about God that I think we need to understand. Jesus told us, let our yeas be yeas and let our nays be nays. In other words, what we say, we should mean it. And if we don't mean it, don't say it. And a Christian needs to know how to say yes, and he needs to know how to say no. What happens sometimes, however, when we look at the staunchness of God's character, knowing that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, knowing that in God there is no variableness nor shadow of turning, knowing that in God his word has been settled, knowing that in God there is wrath, Sometimes we fail to search out the whole truth of the matter. You see, the truth of the matter is, to several of God's laws, in fact, to many of God's laws, He has really made exceptions. Now, you may not believe that, but I can show you in the Bible some laws that God made, and He did make some exceptions to those laws. You may say, well, just give me an example, Brother Grant. The scripture that I just read to you, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. Ezekiel 18.4 and Genesis 2.17. Did you know that God's made an exception to that? And that exception is found in Luke 13. I tell you nay, but accept. Now, the only exception to it is... You've got to repent. Now, if God did not make exceptions to some of his rules, we would not need his attribute of mercy. Because I say we wouldn't need it, it just wouldn't be there. But why do we need mercy? And mercy is the withholding of judgment. Because judgment should come to us, and it doesn't come to us because of exceptions that he makes. Now, that may shock you, but that's exactly what is true. The new birth in the New Testament. When Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, "What?" or he said, Good Master, we know that thou art a teacher that cometh from God, for no man can do these things that thou doest. He said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus said, Except ye be born of water and of spirit, ye cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And we all sit here saved on the straight and the narrow toward heaven, having the firm assurance that we will not have to spend eternity in hell because God made an exception to his rule and we took advantage of it. He showed mercy. He withheld judgment because of a change in attitude or heart toward himself. And that's why we are where we are. And I must say this. With heaviness in my heart, I really deserve to be lost. But he saved me. Why did he save me? When his law stated, the soul that sinneth that shall surely die, he didn't have to change his mind. He made an exception, however, because he gets no glory at all out of people perishing. When he created me, he created me not just to serve him, and give adoration to him. But after Lucifer and his kingdom left the holy city, the heavenly throne, the lofty and lifted up place, it appears that God, being a God of love, through necessity created the heavens and the earth for another channel in which he could show his love. God gets as much thrill out of me serving him as I do. I really believe that. I actually believe that. You see, he was long-suffering in the days of Noah, not willing that any should perish. He'd already told the world, I'm going to wipe you out, but he waited a long time to do it. Long-suffering simply means to suffer long. Now, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit that's found in Galatians 5, just turn there with me if you would. I could quote this to you and you could comprehend it. I like for people to turn in the Bible if we don't spend a lot of time. Uh, when I say spend a lot of time, we don't have a lot a lot of time to do this. But look at Galatians 5. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is joy, or love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Gentleness, goodness, and faith. A good way to say long-suffering is to say it like this. Long-suffering. Now, it doesn't say patience, does it? It says long-suffering. Patience and long-suffering are very closely related. The Bible says, In your patience possesses ye your soul. Patience is waiting. But long-suffering is patience plus pain or suffering. It simply meant when God looked down upon the world, knowing that the world was headed for destruction, while he waited on them, he suffered. There was heaviness in his heart. There was grief in his heart. 
This is why the Bible says God repented that he had made man. You think God wanted to do that? No. Do you think wrath is an attribute of God that, uh, that, that God likes to use? Or you, you think it's a quality or a characteristic of God? That would be a better word than attribute. You think this is a characteristic that he, that, that, that he likes? No, in the book of Revelation it speaks of the wrath of the Lamb. You see, a, wrath, a lamb is noted to be a docile, domestic creature. And wrath is something that's not associated with a lamb. And you've got to do a whole lot to get a lamb upset. And the reason why that God made an exception to his Genesis 2 rule is because he does not like the thought of people dying in hell. Somebody told me, he said, you know, to me, this business about hell and burning forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, that seems to be so unfair. They said, don't you think it's unfair that people have to burn forever in hell? And you know what my answer to that was? It, it certainly is. You may say, you agree with that, Brother Grant? I absolutely agree with it. I agree with it 100%, and God also agrees with it, and that's the reason why he made an exception. You see, because hell was prepared for the devil and his angels, but all sin, it has already been predestined that will burn in hell, it will be confined to hell. And the devil came along and introduced it to the human race. God's plan for man was the Garden of Eden. And a beautiful utopia on the planet Earth. The devil spoiled that. He took his knowledge and revelation and carefully devised a plan in which he could lead people into darkness. The reason why he says the master is lying because he knows so much. In the book of Revelation, he's called the accuser of the brethren. You can do anything that's, that's a little out of the ordinary, and sometimes God asks you to do that. And when you do it, what happens? All of a sudden, the devil begins to accuse you, telling you, isn't that ridiculous? This is stupid. Why are you doing this? What about this? You can even go do something, repent over it, and get the, the, the Lord's blood to take it away. And then what happens? All of a sudden, it, it can come back and haunt you. The devil just... He's the accuser of the brethren. But we would not be here today doing what we're doing. We would not be able to feel what we felt last evening. Why were all of these brothers and sisters running around this tabernacle last evening? Why were they dancing in the spirit? Why was this preacher up here shouting while he was preaching? Because God made an exception for him. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Because he made an exception to the rule. The exception to the rule, except you repent. I'm going to make an exception for you. If you people will repent of your sins, I'm going to change my mind. Now, 
The reason why that I feel that this is so important to teach because it plays such an integral part in your relationship with God. Now, as we taught in the stewardship, we're not using the overhead today, and we will not be using it anymore, I don't believe. But when we first came to God, we had to submit to Him. The prodigal son who went wayward had to submit to Him. But basically, all of us, in order to keep the proper relationship with God in this world, we have to keep ourselves submitted or keep our lives under the blood. Now, I want to tell you about something that that happens to us quite often. Quite often, we can... We can uh, experience prosperity and the blessings of the Lord, and we get a little lifted up. Uh, it's said of a man who is a bishop, he should not be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the snare and the condemnation of the devil. The Jewish men did not start their ministry until they were 30 years of age. The reason why is because they had to learn a trade and establish credibility in their community. It's a it, it is a commendable thing to see these young men working on a secular job. Now, I'm not saying that I feel that it is, is wrong for uh, a missions department to sponsor someone full-time. But I will say this. I do disagree with a man getting his license and all of a sudden just going straight into the ministry. I think he needs to work in a local church for some time. And that should be determined by himself and his pastor, more his pastor than himself. See, when Paul received his calling, he didn't just go right out and start preaching. He did go to Jerusalem and preach. He spent three and a half years in the Arabian desert, came back, reported the church. He went back to Tarshish, his hometown, then to Antioch. Did you know it was a long time before Paul received a commission? Now, why did this happen? Knowing the nature of Paul prior to his salvation just might be that that God intentionally held him down for a while because he had to learn a few lessons. And we can experience prosperity and after we experience it, it, it's easy for us to get lifted up and feel that we're Mr. and Mrs. Somebody. Now I'm just going to tell you the truth. When Pentecost first started, we were the off-scouring of the earth, those that lived on the backside of the tracks. But let me tell you what happened, what has happened to us uh, in, in many cases, okay? I, I use the word in many cases. You see, while, while God is bringing us in one direction, the devil's taking the world in the other direction. And uh, so we were the off-scouring of the earth. We fought for prominence in society. We wanted to arrive. But you've got to remember, while we were fighting for prominence in society, and God was blessing us because of our humbleness... We were digging our way out of the tunnel from the backside of the tracks. The world was going on the other side that we came from. And we went through a real age here in the 60s and 70s. Now the 80s in which moral decay has become so devastating and so dangerous and scary. But we're not the church on the other side of the tracks now. What's happened is we've switched roads with the world. And by that I mean God has really blessed us. 
And you see, we're not fighting what we used to fight. In fact, you know what we're fighting now? The world's looking at us and saying, you're a bunch of Pharisees and hypocrites. You don't hear them calling us the off-scouring of the world anymore. You dress so nice, you look like you're going to a fashion show when you go to church. Now, you know that I'm telling you the truth. It didn't used to be that way. And you see, because of this, we have to look at ourselves in the light of the Scripture, and we've got to stay in the light of the Scripture. And one of the biggest problems that, that people are having, as Brother Tenney spoke last night, the church is closed. It's harder to get into it than to get in an Alcatraz. And it didn't used to be that way. We look down our noses at the poor. We don't even care to have them in our church. We like to pick who we get. Now that's, that's quite a difference, Brother Tenney, from what it used to be. Why are we where we are? Because we put ourselves here? No, because God put us here. And we did certain things right in the past in order for Him to bless us. But we don't want to become like Laodicea by saying we are rich and increased in goods and we have need of nothing. That was a problem with Laodicea. And if I know anything about the Bible, I believe that we're living in the Laodicean church age. We don't want that to happen to us. Now, we just want to talk just a few moments here uh, on what really happened to us when we came to the altar. What, what uh, Repentance, repentance, repentance. Now, repentance is not spiritual perfection. It's really turning around. It's going in a different direction. When... We came to the Lord after, uh, let's put it this way, when, when Jesus Christ ascended in John 14, he said that, that, that the Holy Spirit would judge the world. Now, I personally believe that the judgment seat of Christ is set up right now. You know, in your search for truth charts and such, you see the judgment seat of Christ during the time of the tribulation after the rapture of the church takes place. You may say, do you, you don't believe there will be a judgment seat there? Yes, I do. But the judgment seat of Christ is found in the Bible simply means a place in which Christ judges. And you see, he will judge the world. He will judge the quick and the dead. Now, the judgment seat of Christ, I believe, is set up right now. That simply means that we have the privilege and the opportunity... Prior to the white throne judgments, which will also be a judgment seat of Christ, it's a seat where he judges, we have the opportunity at this time to bring ourselves to God for judgment. And that's a beautiful thing. You see, that's what happens when, the, when a, a sinner repents. You see, the Lord can deal with a man and all of a sudden he feels pricked in his heart. The Holy Spirit then calls him to an altar of repentance. He comes and submits himself to God. Now, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, the 5th chapter, verse 24, Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Now, what he's saying is that 
prior to that white throne judgment, some people can send their sins to be judged ahead. That's what you do when you repent. And the judgment of God means death. That's exactly what it means. And that's the reason why that Paul uses the vernacular that he uses in Romans 6. He explains what happens in Romans 6. He said, now, because of the grace of God, is Calvary a license for sinning? In other words, because there is mercy and grace? Does that mean we can just do what we want to do? He said, God forbid. For how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us that were baptized into Jesus Christ was baptized unto his death. Therefore we are buried with him in baptism. Jesus Christ died, he was buried, and he arose again. That's the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, we have at this present time, because of the exception of the original law that Jesus made, we have this distinct privilege of coming to God and having our old man of sin nailed to his cross. We're crucified with him. Now when Jesus Christ died, the Bible tells us that he ascended into the lower parts of the earth. He came forth triumphantly with the keys to death, hell, and the grave. Now, what do you do with dead people? You simply bury them. And that's where our baptism comes in. Now Jesus had this to say to a wicked and perverted generation. He said, I give you no sign in my deity or my headship or my authority except the sign of Jonas when they sought for a sign. That's found in Matthew 12, 39 through 41. You see, baptism is a sign or a symbol of the grave or hell. Now he spoke of the sign of Jonas and if you will turn back there with me to Jonah, the second chapter. Jonah, the second chapter, the Bible tells us that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. Jonah represents a backslider. When you start sliding backwards, see everything's downhill all the way. When Jonah started running from God, what did he do? When he started running from God, what did he do? He went down from where he was to Joppa. He went down from Joppa to the seaside. There he bought a ticket. And then he went down into the boat. And later on he went down into the sea. And then he went down into the belly of the whale. And then he went down to the bottom. You see, that's the way it is when you run from God. It's down all the way. You see, then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. And he said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Why did he cry? Because of his fear of destruction. He was in the whale's belly. And out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods come past me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Psalm the 42nd chapter, verse 7, 
Deep calleth unto deep at the noise of thy waterspouts. All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. And what happens to us when we're baptized, there is something that takes place in baptism that really H2O cannot do. I can show you in the book of Hebrews where that the blood is an answer of a good conscience toward God. I can show you in the, in the epistle of Peter where the baptism is. Is it the water that washes away thy sins? The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord, thou shalt be saved. However, in that salvation, according to Paul, the death, the burial, and the resurrection is incorporated. Now, Ananias instructed Paul to arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins. Is he saying that water is going to wash them away? You see, there are several things in the Bible that sometimes we, we have trouble with. We have trouble with the name. Are we saved by the name? The Bible says we are. Are we saved by the blood? The Bible says we are. Are we saved by the water? The Bible says we are. Then what are we really saved by? You see, really what happens in baptism is this. You go down in the grave, which is a type or symbol of hell. The name of Jesus Christ is called, but the name identifies the blood that actually takes away the sin. And then our sins are left in the sea of forgetfulness. Never to be remembered again as Jesus Christ went into hell or into the inner parts of the earth. We send our corruptible nature of sin to be judged. And when we come up out of the water, we are a new creature. That means a new species in the Greek. We don't love the world. We cannot love the world. We cannot survive in the world. A fish cannot fly through the air. Why? Because he's not of that species. Neither can Christians mix and mingle with the world and live or survive because they're not that species. So basically what happens, we have, the, we have the distinct privilege of coming before the throne of grace at this time, which is the judgment seat of Christ. And there we cast ourselves for mercy. And then the Lord takes away that sin and casts it into hell. It's never remembered again. So you see, when Jesus said, I give you nothing but the sign of Jonas, what he was saying is, nobody in the world needs any more positive proof that God exists than seeing a man born again. When you see a wretched, vile sinner go by the way of Calvary, come up out of hell, and walk anew, you need no greater miracle than that to prove the validity of God. Praise God. And the greatest influence that a church will have on a community, irregardless of how many people that are blind have opened eyes, regardless of how many cripples get up out of wheelchairs and walk, the greatest influence in a community that a church can have is to see a vile, wretched sinner change his lifestyle, change his mode of living, 
be converted and walk anew. And you may have all the other, but friend, if you don't have that, you don't have much. Really, you don't. Now, while it is true that all of these things then took place at an altar of repentance, and it did, and I really thank God for it, what happens to us sometimes, we, we really think that, that that's for sinners only. And uh, I don't really think that's true. Now, let me just, just explain to you something that happens to all of us. Now, this happens to all of us. Listen to me carefully before you judge what I'm saying. You ever been involved in a ministry of the church and you look for ways to get out of it rather than ways to perform it? Now, you know you have. And I remember when I used to work on a bus min- in the bus ministry. And it just goes so good at times. And other times I just, I'd get up and, oh, dear me, i got to go run that bus. Oh, dear. And there were times when the preacher would preach and he'd get all excited and dance around the Spirit and everybody else would. And I just wondered why I couldn't. And I, I really wanted to, but I just didn't, didn't seem to have my, my get up and go done. Got up and went. I think that's good English, but it's good theology. But you see, you see uh, what, what happens to us sometimes, I'm talking about to the best of people. I'm talking about even to preachers. You hate to see Bible study time roll around. I've got to get prepared. I've got I to gotta get down and dig. And it leaves you. And uh, <clears throat> this happens sometimes to, to uh, undisciplined Christians. Uh, wife will look at the husband and say, we're going to church tonight. Well, that should have been said a long ago, but some church, somehow uh, houses or some dwellings, it hasn't been. So the husband said, well, yeah, I guess I, guess I feel like going. You know, you call some people up and say, you come to church tonight? Yeah, if I, if I feel like it, I will. There's a contingency there. And, you know, you can make yourself sick if you want to. Oh, sure, I used to get sick. My mother checked me, and she said, feel like you got a fever. bus would run, and I'd be, I'd be well and up and playing. I just didn't want to go to school. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that the spirit of a man will sustain him in his infirmities. Can you believe that? See, some sickness are self-imposed. They really are. And even when you do have a spiritual, I say physical, a spiritual, I should have said physical, when you have a physical impairment or some sickness come upon you, the answer for you not getting down and the answer for you not staying down and the answer for you to ward off devil oppressions and such is to allow your spirit inside to remain healthy and strong. You've even heard medical doctors say, well, if they give up, they'll just die. Now, have you heard medical doctors say that? All of us are familiar with that. You mean to tell me that I've got something inside that's so abstract that doctors can't even find it when they cut me open that can keep me alive? Well, they even themselves tell you that that's true. What happens when you start dying? You really start dying inside before you die outside. And this is the reason why that a whole lot of Christians listen carefully to me. You see, the body can become so habitual 
And I'm not saying that Christianity should not be run from the standpoint of discipline sometimes. I believe there are two ways in which it ought to be run. But I'd hate to know that I had to live all of my life and the only thing that I really got out of it was the fact that I say, well, I'm a well-disciplined man. I don't believe that Christianity ought to be run solely from a standpoint of discipline. Now, when you get tired and lazy and this type of thing, uh, you know, you're, you're physically down. Sometimes you have to make the body get up and go. You know, there's two ways you can get this car out here to go down the street. It has an engine under the hood. You can use that. Or if it fails, then you have to push it someplace you can't just sit there. And it's that same way, and, and God recognizes that in our lives. That's the reason why, that we are to instruct our children. But when they don't do it, sometimes we have to, we have to use some external power to, to keep it going until the internal takes over. But God did not intend the church to run on discipline. And preachers sometimes run out of gas. I mean, the steam is gone. The fire is gone. People lay out a church. They don't, they don't like to go to camp meetings. They don't like to go to rallies. They don't like to do anything. They just run out. I'm just out of steam. That's it. What am I supposed to do? Now, does that ever happen to you? Now, I've got to tell you, and I'm just going to be real truthful with you. I've got to be honest with you in order to teach this type of lesson. And, and I prayed last evening, I prayed this morning, God, let me be honest enough to get the truth across to the people. And that's what I want to be. I want to be honest with you. There are times when I don't want to go to church. You mean you, Brother Grant, a pastor and a superintendent? There are times, listen, when I, I just soon play sick. Now, I've got enough character inside to just get up and, my, and go because I, I, I feel that I am a fairly well-disciplined individual. But, but I, even when I do that, I get the feeling guilty. How come I don't want to do this, God? Right. Now, Brother Merrick and Brother Tinian, these ministers can, can, can probably, uh, they, they can say amen real loud to this. You see, uh, a few years ago, we were wanting to be su so successful as pastors that uh, we started seeking outside of the church for help. Now, I'm not going to say that I don't believe you can receive help from many, many... I believe you can even learn things from the devil. You know, everything can be a learning experience for you. But by that I mean, I caught myself going down to Chicago, one, not Chicago, Milwaukee, to a, to a PMA rally. The reason why I went down there, because I just lost my steam. And I came back with a books under all arms. Listen, I've got a lot of self-help books in my, my library. Now, now you know that do you know that uh, that this is true. Now let me just let me explain myself, okay? I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying I think it's wrong for you to read a self-help book, but I will say this. That you know, like Robert Schuler has a book, you can become the person that you want to become. You may say, is that true, Brother Grant? Probably is. But does that mean that you're the person that God wants you to be? See, there is a vast difference. And sometimes you don't really know what's best for you. And when you, when you become the person you want to become, you could be, be very miserable being that person. 
You just didn't know it when you, when you charted that course. And I would say 99% of all the self-help books, and I say this without reservation, I, I leave myself wide open when I teach or preach, and if you, if, you know, if you want to differ, that's fine. But 99% of all the self-help books have a real touch and flavor of humanism in them. Now, you may say, but Brother Grant, they got Scripture. Oh, yes, I know a lot of Pentecostals got Scripture for their ugly ways, too. But you can, I dare you to find a self-help book and bring it to me and open it up and start reading it. And let me open the epistles and start reading it. And, and, and you, you, you find the connection there. There is a different spirit that runs through those books than that what runs through the epistles. Now, I, I believe that. I, I believe that with all my heart. And that doesn't mean that you can't gain something good out of them. What I'm saying is you've got to be very careful. Otherwise, you see, you can get lifted up with pride and you miss it all altogether. Now, I believe that the Bible teaches us that men ought to lift up holy hands everywhere. The hands that hang down and such. I believe that men ought to be able to square their shoulders and look, look the world in the face. I hate to see men going around like this all the time. But at the same time, while you're squaring your shoulders because of what you are in Christ... If, if you don't watch, you can become something in yourself and you square your shoulders for the wrong purpose. Now, you see, there are certain things that are so closely related that sometimes we cannot differentiate the difference. There is a vast difference between pride and dignity. You see, pride is selfish. It calls attention to you. Dignity, however calls attention to a purpose. We say our soldiers are proud men. Well, we understand that vernacular, but basically they are dignified men. Preachers should be dignitarians. And this is the reason why that an unclean spirit in 1 Peter... I talked to you yesterday about being presumptuous. It also said they are not afraid to speak evilly of dignities. That's talking about leaders. But you see, a leader should not be a proud man calling attention to himself. But he should be dignified. By that I mean he should call attention to the purpose of Calvary. And there's such a close association sometimes that all you have to do while you're squaring your shoulders and lifting up holy hands everywhere like the Bible tells you to do, all you got to do is stop praying and emphasizing the right things and after a while the world's looking at you as some kind of a Pharisee or hypocrite. And you can square your shoulder and pass the man on the street like the Levi and the priest did. You see, it's a whole lot easier to go astray than what you think. While we have been redeemed from the standpoint of having the inner man renewed and remade and, and born again, because we do wear a fleshly robe and live on the planet earth, there is a direct pipeline from hell to us.
And there, it will be that way until this corruptible, this corruption puts on incorruption, and this mortal puts on immortality. Now, you just lose your steam sometime. You just don't know what's happening to you. Then you don't want to go to church. Your vitality is gone. Your desire is gone. It's just all left you. And you don't know what's wrong. Still pay your tithes. You still come to church, but you know, you just have to force yourself. You've got to make those feet get up. You've got to make yourself sane. Nothing is spontaneous. What's wrong? We're going to give you a little break here, and then we're going to talk about it. Stand up, would you? Here lies John, dead as usual. You know? <laughs> we got a we got a dear sister that 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 I worked with for years, and 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 she is the most negative individual. And I hate to see this in Christians because I don't really think it's scriptural. I mean, she is just you can't believe how negative she is. And she had a problem. I said, "Well, sister, did you pray about it?" She said, "Yes." I said, "What happened?" She said, "It got worse." Really, I told Sister Grant, I said, now, I just don't know how to help her. I got so aggravated at her one day, I told my wife, I said, she'd make a good cover girl for the book of Lamentations. <laughs> I just never in my life seen anybody. <laughs> you, you talk about a sad case. <laughs> I mean, what do you do? With, what do you do? Now, there has to be a spiritual, there's got to be some spiritual help for an individual like that. There's just got to be. And you see, you see all these things happening to you. And it happened to me, and it happens to me all the time. Uh, but when I went through a period of time in my ministry in which I, I became very, very concerned about it, I said, now, Lord, there's got to be an answer. And just as we did yesterday in our Bible study, I determined that the Bible must have the answer for me. So I started a scriptural search to cure my problem. I want to be saved. Now, I ran across a few things in the scripture that, that I thought was very enlightening. But the thing that I ran across that I think helped me the most was a letter that the uh, Apostle John wrote when he was writing to the churches. So if you will turn with me to Revelation 2. I preached a message and used this in Minnesota one other time. It was at Brother Fuller's church at a missions conference. For the most part, brother, you people are, are not in the ministry and there's a lot larger crowd here. And you represent a, a greater cross-section of the people. And I, I just really felt that I should get into this. Now, I began to search the scripture, and Revelation 2 says unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things saith he that holdeth seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candles, and thou that hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast for the name's sake 
has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, now here's an accusation that God had. I have somewhat against thee. What is it? Thou hast left thy first love, and this means thy first desire. Now the first love, the first desire. You ever seen a person just filled with the Holy Ghost? That new convert desire? You you ever notice that? Isn't that something? It's just amazing, some of the things. I I just can't believe how, how... uh, now we, we say, well, it's the Holy Ghost inside of them. Well, we're, I'm going to go a little bit different angle today, and I'm not trying to discredit the Holy Ghost. Please understand. I'm not trying to discredit the Holy Ghost. But, but you'd be surprised what some new ones do, and because of their innocence, but yet because of their, their desire, and it being genuine, what they can do and get by with and be effective with. Uh, for an example, we had a boy filled with the Holy Ghost, and, and, and that boy was red hot on fire. And you're talking about weep and cry and pray at the altar. And he, he, he owned a, a band. And he played uh, classical and jazz music throughout the states. A noted band. He went all over political parties and places. And he said he was going to get these men saved. Well, it was really amazing to me. Uh, he just called them all over to his house. And he got to, got to witnessing to them and, 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 and started talking about speaking in tongues. And, and so they, they asked him, said, well, can, can you show us in the Bible? He said, no, I can't show you in the Bible at all because I don't know anything about the Bible. I just know that when the preacher preached, I felt something. I went down to the front and I repented of my sins. I was baptized. I was filled with the Holy Ghost and I spake with tongues. You need to get baptized. You need to be filled with the Holy Ghost and, and you need to speak with tongues. They said, well, how do, how do I know this is real? He said, well, let me just show you. And they were all sitting, he got down in the middle of the floor. And he began to pray. And he began to seek the Lord. Now, he didn't know any, any, any better, see. And, and all of a sudden, he said, oh, I feel it coming. And he just kept praying and kept praying. And all of a sudden, he, he started speaking in tongues. And, and one lady told me later, said he literally popped off the floor and hit the ceiling. And when he did, he came down. And he started running around there, and he ran out the screen door and ran down the sidewalk. Just, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He ran back in there and he said, now, man, this is real. Well, I can tell you what happened, and this may shock you. A young lady called me the next week and said that she was crying and said, I need to talk with you. Service was almost over, and I wasn't preaching that morning. And it was on a Sunday morning, so I was in another class, and I'd just come up to my office as they were dismissing the, the uh, adult class. And so I talked to this girl. She said, I'd be over in five minutes. She walked in there and she was weeping. I mean, just weeping and weeping and weeping. What in the world? She came in there and she said, oh, she, she said I'm Kathy. Uh, she said, uh, I need to talk with you. She said, I never met you before. I don't know anything about your church. And, and she began to tell me about how she needed the Holy Ghost and, and how she needed to repent. And I said, how, now, wait a minute. What's your religious background? She said, well, I never went to church anyplace. I said, well, does anybody explain the scripture to you? She said, no. I said, well, what, how do you know you need the Holy Ghost? I was trying to figure out where she was coming from. She said, well, Steve showed me. I said, what do you mean Steve showed me? <clears throat> and you know what? She was, she was 100% sincere and weeping and crying. We took her to the altar and she prayed. We baptized her that morning. Just, It's really amazing. Uh, the man who's the minister of our music now in our church was a member, of, he was a trumpet player in his band. 
You know, it, it's, it's amazing to me, see, what, what God can, can really do. Yes. See, and, and the Lord is saying, now I don't recommend that you go out and do it like that. <laughs> see, but what I'm saying is, you know, it is amazing that you go to a lot of churches, you pick out the new ones. You, you really can. And, of course, you can pick them out for several reasons. Some for reasons of which I, I, I would not recommend that you, that, that, that you uh, adhere to. But on the other hand, when it comes to real worship and their love for God, and they always have their Bible and they got a notepad, it's a little different. So the Lord says, I have something against you. You lost your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Now, fallen, it means backslide, backslid. And do what? Repent. Now, isn't that something? Now, let, let, me, let me tell you something that I, I just really believe. When you look at these people's lives, you cannot touch their lives. You see, I always thought that repentance was something that was negative. Repentance means that I turn away from sin. That simply means I don't smoke anymore and I don't swear anymore. And I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this and I don't do that. But according to the scriptures, I began to look. Repentance is not altogether a negative thing. Now I told you that I believe that repentance is not spiritual perfection. And I really believe that. Now, before I go any further, this will enlighten you. At the same time, you, you can relate to it because you've seen it. Haven't you seen people who have been praying for the Holy Ghost for ten years? I mean, you couldn't touch their life. They, they didn't do anything that you could name that was wrong. The preacher preaches, they come down to the altar, and, and here they, they, they just pray a little while, and they don't get any place. And you see a man that just makes his way down to the altar. He's hungry for God. He's, he's burning up inside. He doesn't know that it's wrong to commit adultery. He doesn't know it's wrong to smoke. He does, all he says is, God, have mercy upon me. He begins to pray and repent. And he's filled with the Holy Ghost. And here this man over here that's been seeking for a long time. He, he, he doesn't have an ounce of hunger in his soul. He's back where a lot of us get, you know. He's run out of steam a long time ago. He hasn't cried a tear at an altar in six months. But he's not doing anything wrong. Now, why is it God would fill this man with the Holy Ghost and wouldn't fill this man over here with the Holy Ghost? Because, you see, the truth of the matter is maybe this man has repented much more, scripturally speaking, than what this man over here has. Maybe you never thought of that. But I really believe that, that that is true. Now you see, when I begin to look in the Bible about true repentance, and like I said, I won't cover it all, but I want to cover some of it, which I feel is very, very important. I saw where the Lord told this church that it adhered to all the do's and don'ts, but they had lost their first love to repent. What am I supposed to repent of, Lord? Am I just supposed to say, God, I'm sorry that, that, that I'm not exuberant like I used to be? Is, is, is that it, Lord? 
I'd like for you to turn with me, if you would, to the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, where he deals with repentance. And some of this we, we hear spoken of quite often. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, the Bible says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. In other words, you, you can cry over the fact that somebody caught you doing something wrong, and that's not a godly sorrow. Because there are people who are involved in, in drugs and such that cry themselves to sleep every night. But you see, that sorrow only worketh death. But he said, the sorrow that God gives to you is never to be repented of, or what he's saying, never be regretted. You, you don't regret over the fact that just on your own, without anybody making you, you approach God with your mind made up that where you have been is not the right position and you submit yourself to God. Now, you'll not regret that. That's what he's saying. Now, he goes into something here in verse 11 that's very, very important. We have studied this week about, or we have made mention. We haven't really studied it. We've made mention of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, when John the Baptist baptized people, prior to him baptizing them, he said, Bring forth meat, fruit, under repentance. Just as the Holy Ghost has certain fruits, John was saying, repentance has certain fruits. Now, I don't think that you and I could judge a man's relationship with God in every case. There are some cases in which you just tell people, I will not baptize you because you've not fully repented. I wouldn't want people taking the spiritual gifts and and measuring me up every day by him. I think some judgment belongs to God. But nevertheless, for your own personal sake, there is a way in which you can know if you have fully repented. Because repentance has fruit, just like the Spirit has fruit. And he goes into this. He said, For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. Now, being sorry for your sins is basically the first step of repentance. Something that you do on your own. You're not forced to do it. You're not, it's not because you're caught in the accusation. You just know that you're a lost sinner and you do it. Now, the first fruit of repentance, it brings about a carefulness in you. You mean a real carefulness, Brother Grant? Absolutely. It brings about a carefulness in you. A carefulness in you. And, and I think that this is something that we really do need to, to take a look at. Uh, I call your attention to Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse 26. The Bible tells us that after we have come to a knowledge of the truth, if we sin willfully, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. And you see, the context of that is willful sin. 
I don't care how powerful you think Jesus Christ's blood was. The Bible says that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was not appropriated to cover willful sin. Now, willful sin simply means sin that you are doing and you know it's wrong, but you do it all the time. The purpose of sin is to do what? Destroy the will. And once the will of man has been destroyed, he cannot be saved. Now, your will can be broken and it can be submitted to the wrong source. And it can be rejuvenated by an act of God, a miraculous act of God. It can be revived by faith as you hear the word of the Lord. But if it's ever killed totally, it just, you can't do anything about it. That's what Paul was speaking of in Hebrews, the sixth chapter. He even spoke of people who fall away. Falling away means that you reach the point in which you are a reprobate. Now, you simple backsliding we're not talking about. But the reason why it's important that we call your attention to this because, you see, a lot of people get into dangerous spiritual trouble because they're not careful enough. And while the preacher's preaching on this and that and this and that, they look at the things they're doing and the things they're not doing and they, they just seem to equate everything is going to average out. No, my friend, the Bible tells us if we sin willfully, there is no sacrifice for sin. And one of the greatest advantages that you can take, or one of the greatest things that you can take advantage of in your walk with God, is to have the Holy Spirit to move upon you and breathe upon you. And get that Bible out and just... Put your elbows right down on each side and get down by your bedside and thumb through the pages of the Word and say, God, give me the willpower to obey everything that my preacher preaches on. And while you're doing it then, just try repenting. God, I'm not as careful as I ought to be. And I repent of the fact, God, that certain things don't bother me anymore. You do something that's wrong, it hurts you. You do it wrong again, it hurts you a little. You do it wrong again, it hurts you just a little bit, just a smidgen, as they say down south. You just keep doing it, and after a while, it doesn't bother you at all. This is the reason why some people go around and say, well, I don't get it, it doesn't bother me. Yes, sir. I've even heard people go so far and say, God knows my heart. Honey, you better believe He knows your heart. The problem is, Jeremiah said, man doesn't know his heart. And there's not enough carefulness sometimes in our lives. He doesn't stop there, though. He said, what clearing of yourselves? Clearing of yourselves? Oh, there's just all kinds of cares. See, Paul said, lay aside every weight and the sin that might so easily beset you. There, there are certain things that you need to clear yourself of. I'm not just talking about sin. That, that, that is included. But you see, sometimes Christians get, can get hobbies and they get obsessed with them. Sure. It becomes a weight to them. I mean, is there anything wrong with fishing? You see, uh, somebody said, well, you're not supposed to fish anymore because the Lord called them away from their nets, but I can show you where Jesus took them fishing afterwards. And in fact, he even taught them how. He told them right where to lower their net and, 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 and so forth. But you see, 
These things can become an obsession. If I'm not careful, listen, there are a lot of things I like to do. I mean, a lot of things I like to do. And I can get just so busy just enjoying life that my Christianity dissipates. Clearing of yourself. Now, it does include sin. A lot of people have grudges and feelings and such. Oh, listen, we have to measure ourselves according to the Word of God. But, but you see, what happens to us is that sometimes, you know, we wonder, why, why are things wrong? Why am I always having a conflict with people? Why am I always having these feelings of unrest? What, what's the problem? What's, what's this and what's that? It's because we don't clear ourselves. Now, my son was so gracious as to give me a watch with a calculator on it. And, and I, I use this calculator a lot. Now, just recently I got where I can't read it. But uh, when I could read it, uh, I used it a lot. Now, I pretty well know where they are, so I'll just add 6 plus 6. And uh, you know the answer to that is 12. On the other hand, let's say that I wanted to add 5 plus 5. So I go 5 plus 5. And, and the answer is 10. Isn't that right? Well, you see, my calculator doesn't say that. My calculator says 22. Now, you know the reason why that this thing didn't add up right? It's because it, <laughs> it had too much use without clearing. And, and you see, I think that this is something that we need to take a careful look at. Do you know the reason why that Jesus retired alone to the mountainsides? To clear himself. Do you know the reason why he got up early in the morning while they were all snoozing? To clear himself. You see, I'm not saying that Jesus Christ was guilty of sin. But you see, you can't rub shoulders on the world with the world every day and not have it affect you eventually. And you see, the beauty, I think, in Jesus Christ was the fact that he had enough good common sense to clear himself every day. And he was doing all of that, not just to teach us a lesson, but in doing so, he did teach us how to do it. Isn't it strange that when Jesus Christ taught us to pray, he said, this is the way you do it. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. He went on to say, and forgive us of our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And he also said, and lead us not into temptation. Now there are certain things that have an effect on you, even against your will. Now, now you get six you get sick physically and you stay in bed and you miss Bible studies five weeks in a row, even though you can't help it. Now, that's going to have an effect on you spiritually. And you see, you can't help it because you work on a job where you work. In fact, the Bible commands you to provide for your own. You cannot help that. But I tell you what you can help. You can help yourself stay spiritual by not allowing that stuff to rub off on you, by just simply going and clearing yourself every day. You see, we've got this, we've got this idea that repentance was for those dirty, rotten, vile sinners that are adulterers and fornicators and whoremongers and such, and we're all right 
I've got the Holy Ghost inside. And this is the reason why that sometimes it becomes so mechanical. I talked to you about how long you should pray in the mornings. I said you should pray until you can't stop praying. Now, isn't it true that sometimes, sometimes you know, you can clap your hands and feel very exuberant. But deep down inside, there's not something really pushing all this out of you. You're not feeling like you felt it before. You feel a little clogged up inside. And other times it just flows like a river. You couldn't stop it if you wanted to stop it. Now I'm going to tell you something here that might shock the daylights out of you for a preacher to say it, especially a camp speaker, but I'm going to say it. You know what? A whole lot of Pentecostals, I really believe, learn how to talk in tongues over a period of years. And they can just get up and talk in tongues anytime they want to and live like the devil anytime they want to. And friend, that isn't right. And we kind of judge our spirituality on the basis of how much we talk in tongues. Are you saying, Brother Grant, that you believe people are exempt from talking in tongues? I'm not saying that. I believe that they ought to. But what I'm saying is that there's, there, there's something that's not clear inside. If you're able to talk in tongues, then you can hold all kinds of grudges and talk bitter and, and gossip and do some of the things that some people do. Something's wrong. No, it just isn't right. It just plain isn't right. Turn with me to John 14, 30. And this is speaking of our Lord and Master. And I, I think it's a, it, it is a scripture that uh, and we need to take a careful look at. John 14, 30. Jesus said, Hereafter, I will not talk much with you. For the prince of this world cometh... And have nothing in me. Now you know the reason why that Jesus felt the importance of clearing himself every day? Now, the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Some people feel that he never tempted him anymore. The Bible says we are tempted when we're done when we do what? Drawn away by our own lust. When lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When sin is finished, it bringeth forth death. And the Bible says that the prince of this world came to Jesus. And it was like Jesus just kind of opened up the curtain of his heart. And you know, sometimes we don't like to do that. We don't like for anybody to know what's happening inside. But when the devil opened up the curtain of his heart and looked inside, he saw nothing inside of the heart of Jesus that reminded him of his own kingdom. Do you think then the devil had some type of point in which he could touch Jesus? You may say, well, Brother Grant, you're, you're acting like that we can live a life where the devil never touches us. This is what I'm saying. I believe the secret to living free from sin, according to Romans 6, is making sure that you're clear every day. Hallelujah. 
It doesn't stop there, though. Let's go to the next one. Now, that's one of the fruit of repentance, as far as I, I can see. He says, what indignation? Indignation? What is indignation? It's, it's a righteous anger. You mean, what do you mean by righteous anger? There's something that wells up inside of you. I mean, it really wells up inside of you. I mean, you get a real righteous anger about the devil and the word, uh, I say the word that, uh, the devil and the lies that he's telling people. It's, it's, it gets inside of you. Yes. And every time you hear some saint of God, that backslides. There should be something inside of you that just wells up against the devil. I just... You parents who have children, it ought to boil your blood. We'll move on. What fear? You mean fear? Now... We're talking about respect of God, respect for God, and I understand that there is a slight difference in respect and just being afraid. But I will say this, according to the Bible, I can't really divide them like some people divide them. I believe that I'm serving God today because while I was a young man, my mother put the fear of God in my heart. Listen, I went to bed a lot of times thinking I was going to burn in hell if I didn't repent. And for some reason, sometimes we just get this idea that, you know what, you know what, really we believe in the doctrine of eternal security much more than what we think we do. Once saved, always saved. We say, that's not right, that's what the Baptists say. But I can tell you one thing, the Baptists don't define sin like we define it either. And the way we define sin, you'd almost believe that we thought once saved, always saved. Hello? So he said, what fear? Hebrews 4th chapter, and I'd like for you to turn there with me. I don't have long here this morning, but I, I just, uh, I want to cover this. I want to present enough evidence in this for you to get the picture real Real good. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. To help in time of need. Now, the judgment seat of Christ, as I said, I believe is actually now. And you have the opportunity of coming before the throne of God every day, every day, every day, every day, every day, every day. The widow that came to the unjust judge, what was she crying and praying about? The Bible says that she said, Deliver me from my adversary. I've heard a lot of people say, well, what the scripture is saying here is that if you have a need of God, just square your shoulders and walk up there like a big man and say, God, I'm your child. Give me what I want. 
No, now, if you take a careful look at this, he's talking about the high priest as it equates to the sacrifices and such. Now, if you notice this, this, he says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Infirmities are dealing with sicknesses and weaknesses. But was in all points tempted. So he's dealing with weaknesses and temptation. And notice when we get there, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may do what? Find grace? No, mercy comes first. What do you mean mercy? Do we need mercy? Do we really need mercy? God makes an exception to the original rule only when we submit ourselves to Him and coming boldly before the throne of grace. It's not making an arrogant move or approach to the throne. But you remember the story of the two men who prayed in the temple? One way off over there, he was a Pharisee. And one on this side, he was a publican. The Pharisee looked over and saw this publican praying. He represented the sinner. He said, I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there. I'm glad I'm holy. I'm glad I'm all right. But the bold approach before the throne of God was made by the publican. When he smote himself over the breast. And he said, God! And that's the reason why that a man like Paul never lost his proper or lost his perspective. I am what I am by the grace of God. He even spoke of himself as being the chief of sinners. He realized that he wore a robe of human flesh. He cried out in Romans 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You don't find grace until you're granted mercy. And your bold approach, sliding into the throne like a runner sliding into second base. Listen, you don't care who sees you or who knows about it. God, I fear you. No, I didn't come to God. I'm going to tell you this. I didn't come to God because I loved him. I serve him now because I love him. But I don't really believe people come because they, they love God. Now, I think there are different levels of love. But my Bible tells me I love him because he first loved me. Some preacher preached a red-hot message, and I heard it one day. Well, I didn't really care anything about the apostolic way. I didn't want to go to hell. And you know, when Jesus was here, he sure talked about hell a lot. I, I, I kind of got the idea that, that somehow we think that speaking of hell is very offensive. And we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Well... That may be true, but on the other hand, you've you got to preach the things that, that, that Jesus stressed and preached. You've you got to talk about it. 
And so I came to God, not really because I loved him, but I came because I feared him. But I'm going to tell you something, that fear has not left me. And every time I go to this throne, the first thing I do, I go feet forward, not head first. By that I mean, God, I am nothing. And you are everything. Is that something that Jesus taught us? Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. He included in that prayer. And there is nothing wrong with you realizing that you're really not anything. That you are nothing without God. And stressing that to Him. And really meaning it in your heart. Now after that we are granted grace and then we are made to do what? Sit in heavenly places with Christ. You want to sit in heavenly places with the Lord? Make sure you approach the throne properly. And when you sit, you take the load off yourself and you put it on something else. Praise God. I want to sit in heavenly places with God. And you take people who brag about their sin and brag about their weaknesses and they don't really care. They don't have much fear. And then it goes on past that. Yea, what vehement desire... You remember I talked about the man over here who had repented, but he never cried a tear? Who said he repented? You, you see, repentance is not altogether negative. What happens is you cross over a line in which you become, what you take on some very positive things. You ever wonder why that some people without the truth seem to have more motivation and more desire to serve God than some people in the truth? Because at least they, they, they got enough sense to know that they are nothing. And the truth of the matter is, if you don't want something, you can't get anything. And your desire really comes from God through repentance. You see, when you're, vac- when you're cleared up inside, you have fear in your side. You notice uh, inside of you, you notice how these things just keep moving. You keep, keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden, there's a vacuum inside of you. And, and there's something crying out. I talked to a young lady. I taught her a Bible study. I did everything that I knew to do for this young lady. And finally, she told Sister Grant and I, she said, We don't want you to come back because I just don't want to serve God. I, I mean, I, I just, what can you do with somebody who doesn't want to? But, but you see, you can't just say, like some of the self-help books, you, you can't just say desire, 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 desire for 24 hours a day for about 365 days of the year and all of a sudden you're just on cloud nine. It really doesn't work that way in your service for the Lord. It just doesn't work that way. So we say, this man has been living a repented life for 24 years or 12 years or whatever I said. This man over here, why, he only prayed uh, just a a matter of moments and and he got the Holy Ghost. We had a Korean boy that recently attended our church that had never been in a Protestant church one time in all of his life. He sat the second or third pew back in the middle of the aisle, middle aisle 
on my left-hand side. And while we were all praising the Lord, he stepped right out in the aisle, lifted his hands, and the Lord filled him with the Holy Ghost, and he spoke with tongues for about 45 minutes. Now, we thought he was speaking in Korean. Somebody came and said, Brother, I don't think he's ever been in church in his life. And so I went down and met him, and he told me, no, he, he never had. I said, it's good to see you praising the Lord like this. I thought he was speaking in Korean. And then he inquired, what's happened to me? Tell me what's happened to me. I said, well, you tell me what's happened to you. He said, well, I'll I, I tell you. He said, I, felt, I just felt this inside of me while people were praising the Lord. I felt something inside of me. And I began to ask God, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. I felt this. And while he was praying this, he lifted up his hands and started talking another language. It was not Korean. We took and baptized him in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He spoke in tongues for an hour or so in the tank. Now, isn't that something that God would do something like that for that individual? And he would bypass a man who'd been praying for 12 years? Listen, if you've been praying for the Holy Ghost a long time you haven't received it, it just might be that you haven't fully repented like you think you have. And I tell all chronic seekers in our church and every place I go, when they say, how come I can't receive the Holy Ghost? And you know, you try to dig up things. Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you, what about this? What about that? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? You know what? I just really believe when you fully repent, you even, even your submission to God becomes automatic. I remember in Brother Merrick's church, I was preaching down there one time. A lady came up the altar and while she was coming, she was, she was saying, I'm not going to receive the Holy Ghost. And she said it at the altar. And I didn't know she'd said that. And, and of course, she was weeping and crying. I went down there and she was just crying. I mean, she was really crying. And so I just stepped down there and I said, lift up your hands. She looked up her hands. I laid hands upon her. And I said, now I want you to receive the Holy Ghost. She started speaking in tongues. Now, that's a strange thing. Somebody says, well, they won't stay around. Well, she's been around quite a while. Isn't that something? So maybe there's more to this than what we really think. And when you are out of steam, and you don't want to come to church, and you don't want to clap your hands, and you don't want to pray around the altar, and you'd rather go to McDonald's and stick around in fellowship for a while, and all of these things leave you. And you're in a rut, which is no more than a grave, with both ends kicked out. And you're wandering around. You just, you, you just don't know what's happened to you. You know what you need to do? You need to repent! Praise God. It's not a popular thing among us because we say, well, we're not sinners. We're saints. Do you know the secret to living a perfect life for the Lord? The secret to living a perfect life is, is not living a life so that you never do anything wrong. Because I've really never known of anybody like that. And if that is what it is, then nobody will ever do it. But the secret of perfection in the Bible is that you keep yourself always under the blood and submit yourself to the Lord. Now, it's Bible studies like this that will knock the pride out of you. But do you know why we're on the prominent side of the tracks today? Because God 
likes to bless people who live right. That's why we are where we are. Do you know why our preachers are some of the finest preachers in the world? Because God dwells in them. If we could put ourselves in the background and protract God out ahead. Oh, what a move of the Spirit. The young lady who said, I don't have a desire. And she sent us away. A few few weeks later, she was killed in an automobile accident. I, what can you do for somebody that that doesn't have it? The answer is in the scripture. You can get it if you got enough sense to pray. What zeal? Now you notice how it is positive now. You know, it's not laying aside thing. What zeal? Man, give me something to do. Brother Ruth, show me. Give me direction. Tell me what I need to do, preacher. It seems strange to me that a lot of people say the church is the biggest business and the most important business on the face of the earth, but it's hard to get them involved in it. Now, if that is true, somewhere there is a, a, more than just an ounce of hypocrisy in what you're saying. You believe it only because that, that, that the scripture says it. But, but, but in essence, from your heart, you don't really believe that. Now, we'll, we'll move on. You, you get the point. What revenge? Revenge? God puts in every person who repents. A red hot desire to get even with the devil. 